0: Welcome back to Foster Adopt Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families, as well as professionals. My name is Chris, and I'm an education coordinator at Foster Adopt Minnesota. And
1: I'm Sunny, also an education coordinator here at NAMM. So Chris, today we are starting a new series on communication. Can you please share with our listeners why we thought this would be a valuable series that needed more time than just one episode?
0: Sure. So when we hosted Candace Cahill a few months back for our podcast, Goodbye Again, we both felt like we could have talked to her forever. I don't know if you remember, Um, and specifically about communicating with birth parents. And it's not often we get their perspective about the adoption process. And we get a lot of requests from our listeners about tips and advice for working with birth parents and what's the best way to communicate with them. Then our wheels started spinning about how communicating with all members of a youth team is so important. And that led us to the series that includes perspectives from a child welfare professional at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work, a therapist who is also an adoptee, a county social worker, and a foster to adopt parent. So Sunny, who is our guest today? So today, our guest will be Stacy Gehringer.
1: She is the Director of Outreach at the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work. Today, Stacy will be speaking about the importance of strong communication skills that support collaboration within child welfare teams. Welcome, Stacey.
0: It is so great to have you with us today. Thanks for joining. So we are eager to learn more about the CASHU. Am I saying that acronym correctly?
2: That's right. Thanks for having me. Yep, CASHU, Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare.
0: Yeah, we're excited to learn about all it has to offer as well as the 23rd Annual Spring Child Welfare Conference coming up on May 4th. And we know you're getting busy getting all those details finalized, so let's get started. So can you share with us what interdisciplinary collaboration in child welfare means and why it is important?
2: Sure, yeah. So the formal definition of interdisciplinary practice is actually from the World Health Organization. It's when multiple health workers from different professional backgrounds work together with patients, families, careers, and communities to deliver the highest quality of care. Um, But in child welfare, interdisciplinary practice is often referred to as multidisciplinary teamwork, or sometimes we'll hear about MDTs. And it's defined by the Child Welfare Information Gateway as representing a variety of disciplines that interact and coordinate their efforts to diagnose, treat, and plan for children and families. So those are kind of formal ways of saying how people and policies or systems work together uh, to optimally serve children and families. And then when we say disciplines, um, we're thinking about these bigger areas of practice as they relate to child welfare. So in medicine, we have healthcare providers like NICU nurses or pediatricians, public health nurses, hospital psychiatric staff. So we're, we're also thinking about education, early childhood providers, teachers, IEP or in individual education plan, case managers. We're thinking about housing, um, case managers, shelter staff, folks that work at eviction court, Thinking about law and legal services, dependency courts, judges, attorneys, guardian ad litem, and then psychology and social work. So we work with social workers, therapists, mental health case managers, treatment staff, and the list kind of goes on. Um, we, we Then we have families at the center of all of these converging disciplines. So hopefully that kind of gives you a sense of what we're talking about when we say interdisciplinary collaboration. Um, And the end goal of this interdisciplinary collaboration is coordinated service delivery. We, in other words, working to provide high quality, effective services that respond to the needs of the child and the family.
1: So why is this so important? Well,
2: when we think about this across the spectrum of child welfare, we want to prevent maltreatment. In prevention, how are people and systems supporting healthy, sustainable family preservation and preventing that entry into foster care. Um, If a family does become involved in child protection, how are CP workers collaborating with school, housing, mental health, and so forth, and all of these professionals and systems at play? When a child is in out-of-home placement, how are child welfare teams like case managers, foster parents, group home staff, schools, juvenile justice, how are they interacting to serve the youth and the rest of the family? And then when we're looking at permanency support and services, how can teams work more effectively across disciplines to ensure that there aren't gaps in service delivery? And I think for the purposes of this conversation, we'll focus a little bit more on the permanency and adoption world, but it is important to have the larger context. And also this interdisciplinary approach can help address equity. We know that one barrier to system transformation is the lack of a diverse multidisciplinary workforce prepared for interdisciplinary practice. So expanding some of this interdisciplinary programming can support the diversification of the workforce and improve representation, thus improving support for children and families. We also know that we can create joint resources to benefit professionals in a variety of disciplines we can reduce workforce burnout and increase retention by providing these mutually supportive environments. I think ultimately social workers and professionals and those working with children and families need to be able to reserve their limited energy to work in collaborative, efficient ways to meet the needs of their clients and do high quality work.
1: Okay, thanks for that. Um, So what role does the University of Minnesota cash you play in the interdisciplinary work in child welfare related to permanency.
2: Yeah, um, like we said, we call ourselves Cashew. Um, We're a research and training center located in the School of Social Work at the University of Minnesota. And so one of our primary goals is to help provide resources to the child welfare workforce. So child protection workers, case managers, licensing workers, and, and those serving system involved children and families in Minnesota. Um, Cashew actually currently has a few professional certification programs that support this interdis- uh, what we call interprofessional education and interdisciplinary work in child welfare. So we have PAC, which some listeners might be uh, familiar with. It's the Permanency and Adoption Competency Certificate. And that's a cohort-based professional certificate program that enhances competency for professionals working with children and families who are impacted by foster care
0: and adoption. I think, Stacey, just to interrupt there, we we have a lot of presenters that talk about PAC and that are PAC certified. So I know that, you know, attendees will always ask questions about PAC. So I'm glad that you're talking about this.
2: Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. And, you know, some people um, may have remembered the program in its sort of, when it started and in 2020, the program was fully revised to combine self-paced online training in tandem with interactive classroom sessions and case consultation, which was all created and delivered by those with lived experiences, um, which is just like a really neat component of the program.
1: That really is. And then we also have um, Pat competency therapists listed on our website. So FAM has has that as well. Fantastic.
2: Um, So that's a great example kind of of interdisciplinary work, as as you all know, and and it's just across mental health and um, child welfare settings, again, for folks to get the opportunity to learn together um, in consultation has been really a neat experience. And then we also have the Phoenix Learning Exchange, which is a training program for professionals who work with systems, we call it systems involved youth in a variety of roles. So like county social workers, juvenile probation, judges, residential treatment staff, we've got youth advocates and nonprofit staff and others who join that program. But these participants spend eight months in a cohort learning together about challenges and strengths of youth, their development, and how to increase positive engagement to hopefully make positive changes in their work. And they learn how the other participants think about their work, their perspectives and experiences, and how we can essentially work better together. So it's also a neat collaborative model. Um, I think, for example, like in our last cohort, we had a part-time police officer as well as an advocate working with homeless youth our local agency and there was also a judge in that cohort so just a really neat mix of folks to be able to hear how people think about the work and kind of what um what brings them to the work and I um this
0: is super valuable so that's just some examples yes great I mean what a what a way to collaborate and hear others communicate and different very different backgrounds and roles Definitely. What does the uh,
1: research say about interdisciplinary work? Yeah,
2: so um, we have been collecting articles for our annual publication called CW360, and our topic this year is interdisciplinary collaboration in child welfare. Um, And so it's been interesting to read kind of about some of the most recent research Um, One of my roles at Cashew is to help translate that research to practice and to be able to share this knowledge and best practices with the workforce. Um, I have worked on many multidisciplinary teams myself in child welfare, so that combination has been really fun. And we know from research that when students and professionals come together to learn from, about, and with each other, they can better learn about one another's roles and responsibilities their values and ethics, interpersonal communication, and teamwork. And when you think about it, that makes sense. If I'm clear on someone's role, such as a licensor's role to create a safety plan, let's say in a home, or a case manager's role to update an IEP, an individual education plan, individualized education plan, then I'm going to more naturally ground myself in that reality as I work with those team members. And so um, additionally, some researchers believe that the multidisciplinary collaborative practice provides this mutual support for professionals engaged in what's really emotionally stressful work. So learning together in consultation can generate stimulating discussions or expand perspectives, like we talked about in um in those examples of uh, our interdisciplinary learning at Cashew. It can deepen understanding of the complexity of case issues, can help workers engage families more successfully, and it can provide a comprehensive view of these complex cases. Um, in fact, even anecdotally, I received clinical supervision in a multidisciplinary group setting, and that was an incre- that was just incredibly valuable for my growth as a social worker to be able to better understand and empathize with the perspectives of the people that you work alongside, Um, to hear the thought processes, the tough decisions, the care and concern they have for the kids and families. And it can really help to humanize your colleagues. It's a reminder that everyone is doing the best they can. Um, I can say with certainty that I left those consults with a shift in perspective and more energized about the work.
1: Well, that's really great. I mean, Stacey and Chris, you both have so much experience in this field. Um, so I would really love to hear more about your individual experiences and your backgrounds working on teams in the con like in the context of permanency work.
0: Yeah. So it was, it was great to work with Stacy back in the day. We, uh, had a little bit different roles at different private agencies, but, um, I primarily worked as a family worker, or case manager, and I would reach out, um, you know, to the youth team to get information about them. And Stacy can talk a little bit about her work as a child recruiter or youth worker.
1: Yeah. So you're to to say, it. Back in the day, you guys sound like your old war buddies. I love back it. in
0: the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris We've and I, some battles, I think.
1: <laughs> Chris and I
2: partnered on many cases together. And those cases that we worked with, like the, the youth and the families were often complex. So we would be in team meetings all the time um and part of that work was building relationship um and figuring out again kind of what what the child or what the family needs and then um having lots and lots of touch points I think getting resources together lots of high communication and yeah so Chris and I fun gets kind of fun we do have this experience together um I was a child-specific recruiter, so kind of a youth worker and a family worker uh, working on home studies and supporting families throughout the permanency and adoption process. Um, I worked with relatives as well as non-relative families and then oversaw youth services at the agency, which specializes in older youth permanency. Um, as many of your listeners are, are are either professionals or adoptive families or prospective adoptive parents, they know that a young person has so many people will oftentimes on their professional team. And at my former agency, we always used to say that from a permanency perspective, young people need people who aren't paid to be there. So if you look around the table um, and it's all professionals, number one, how can they work effectively together on behalf of this young person? And then number two, let's get them connected to permanent resources or reconnected to community and kin that are not paid to be in their life. So that was always kind of a value um, in in our work and thinking about in in this multidisciplinary work, like the goal is for folks to not to to essentially not be there anymore. As a child specific recruiter, I don't want to be in that in that kid's life any longer. I need to find them
0: permanency. Um, So, yeah, Yeah, and I think you like sit like good example of sitting around the table and looking at your team. Um, and a lot of times you're the mediator, (laughs) it's can be awkward Mm -hmm. and just building that trust with the adoptive parents, foster parents, um, and the youth too. I mean, we all have our different roles and maybe explaining to, I think, Barb Clark at one of our, um, podcasts that we did recently, she talked about talking to youth, like, Hey, a professional football player is on a team, but that person also has nutritionist, a person like, um, strength coordinator, you know, someone that's getting their exercise together, their routines, their doctors, everything like that. So there's a lot of people involved in someone's success and they just have to remember that. And then the adults being able to communicate effectively is also so important. And sometimes you don't have that. And a lot of it was, you know, working with adults more so than the youth getting them all on track.
2: Absolutely. That um that resonates. And 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 I think trying to uh contextualize or explain to a young person like who everyone is and what their role is um in the child welfare system is in incredibly challenging and often destabilizing. And while they may be, you know, well supported by certain um, team members, I think that think of how if it's overwhelming to us as adults like think of how overwhelming it would be for a young person as well um and that kind of speaks a little bit to some of the interdisciplinary uh collaboration, the barriers that we see uh and as Chris just mentioned how many people are are around um so I know you know I think in child welfare, we require collaboration between professions, but oftentimes people are working under different professional languages, professional cultures, and even sometimes under uh, different statutes. And that can create different barriers um, when we think about kind of all these disciplines involved. So just for parents uh, to remember that and kind of hold that in the in the process um in the adoption process and learning about kids and and who's all part of their their
1: teams which is ever changing we know right and so can you give us some examples of the specific barriers that we face in permanency work?
2: Yeah I think um sort of some some specific barriers that both I think Chris and I saw in our work often were um setting up services across counties in, in Minnesota we have our um 87 counties and 11 tribes, and that can be a challenge if a child moves counties into pre-adoptive placement, depending on the county of fiscal responsibility. So there can be some concrete barriers to literally setting up services such as PCA or um, personal care assistant or a caddy waiver and that kind of thing. And that can be uh, disruptive for families for, for a child's care and for families to not get what they need. Um consistent quality access to disability services. I think getting systems to talk to each other. So like, for example, if a child moves from a residential treatment center, which is in an educational setting, let's say it's a federal level four to a level one school setting um, or to a lesser restrictive setting, uh, we need treatment staff and medical providers and therapeutic supports all to talk to each other. And that can be really hard to translate that information effectively and transition care. Um, it takes a lot of intention and collaboration and really a shared understanding of the overall process. Um, you know, we see placement instability. So no, there might not be a bed for kids in treatment or um, at shelter. So they end up in the ER we see that there's not a collaborated, collaborative response in, in sort of like a crisis response system. So those are just um, some examples that come to mind when I reflect on some of the cases. I don't know if that resonates for you, Chris. Yes, definitely.
1: Wow, can you, really the kids end up in the ER when they don't have beds? Yeah, absolutely.
2: Uh, yeah, that is a, a um sort of again an an issue of where mental health and behavioral health services and child welfare and medical services where we need to figure out um more shared collaboration and that's a policy and systems issue as well
1: wow i had no idea many 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 years ago i worked at a group home and i thought we were the last stop but i hear now that's we were the second to last stop that's really sad.
0: -hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure there's, you know, people could Google too, because we don't have those stats handy about how many beds are available at any certain given time in the state of Minnesota. So, how do teams need to work with other teams and programs in a multidisciplinary way? And what advice do you have when some of their team members aren't collaborating?
2: Yeah, so Sue Abderholden from the National Association of Mental Illness, NAMI, Minnesota, she often uses this metaphor of a house. She says, when people talk about interdisciplinary work, they often talk about silos, but silos are stationary and you can't move them. And silos store things like grain and there aren't really any doors. And she says a more apt description of interdisciplinary work might be a house. There are different rooms within a house, rooms that people can move between or bring something from one room into another. There are doors as well that can be opened to facilitate interdisciplinary collaboration. So Sue encourages people to move from one room to another in thinking about this. And don't just stay in the child protection room, the education room, or the children's mental health room. Roam freely between them to learn from one another. Bring a treasure from one room into another if needed to meet a child's need. So I just really like that analogy because it helps to demystify how overwhelming child welfare teams can feel. And if we as adults feel overwhelmed, then again, think about how a young person might feel. And the systems and teams, the workers need to be able to work across their disciplines, given the many touch points that child welfare involved families encounter. Um, if a child lives in a group home, is on an IEP, receiving disability services from a county program, and enrolled in a truancy diversion program, because of how our system is structured, our systems are structured, none of these people are working off of the same treatment plan, despite the overlapping goals of a you know, that we have for a young person. So it's a lot to kind of think about and advice that I might have
0: for folks that. Are- I know I- this is hard too, because it's like, Hey, how do you make people get along? <laughs> yeah, and I think again, I'll kind of look to the research for that. So <laughs> you're
2: kind of-, of forcing people into this. <laughs> yeah. How do I make people do what I want them to do? That's right. <laughs> So that's there we go. So Dr. Joan Blakey's research she it shows that there are three factors that are vital for the success of interdisciplinary work. And again, I don't think any I think this is where research and practice um, clearly align. So there is a share so number one, there's a shared vision. Number two, folks work as a unified team. So for example, there's no undermining or sabotaging. And number three, there's ongoing communication. And without these factors, we have very kind of a ripe situation for failure, and in turn, we are not going to do justice for children and families. So some of the additional research has found that there are specific kind of personal and professional qualities that are keys to success in this collaboration. And I actually think these are really important components for those working with child welfare professionals and and kind of carry over well for adoptive parents. Um, Number one, Flexibility. So a plan or timeline might change. And I think we see that a lot in transitions, for example. Um, We need to be able to pivot, to reassess, and to be malleable. And that can be really challenging when emotions are high and expectations are set. Number two, openness. So imagining what might be possible and staying open to suggestions and resources, not getting stuck on one way or the right way. Number three. That
0: is hard for us. <laughs>
2: this, is hard. this is harder. This is hard to actually do in practice, right? Right. Number three, respect. When working with a team, it's important to respect their role and responsibilities as they relate to the child or the family. So for example, a teacher may not have training in adoption competency. Likely they do not. And so they they there may need to be some additional psychoeducation provided finally an ability to listen. I think staying curious and really listening. Sometimes teams are saying the same thing in a variety of ways, but we can't hear each other over the noise and oftentimes like I said the high emotion.
0: Right, and I think when people do listen um it's it's just that big role in communication and having the ability to listen and if it, something doesn't make sense to them, I always encourage families like it's fine if you don't know, like we don't know, like we don't have an answer for everything and they feel like it's a weakness and it's actually more of a strength for people to say, I don't know how to do that. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that. Can you tell me more? So. Right. That
2: kind of speaks to that openness piece too. mm -hmm.
0: Exactly. So I don't know if you have any other advice.
2: Well, I think, um, to kind of piggyback off what you said, Chris, I think not, not only is it not okay to know, it's also okay to disagree. And I think it's okay to remember that we can have sort of similar goals and we might vary, um, on how we get there, but being able to take a a step back and regain some perspective, um, holding that several things might be true at the same time. Um, I think there, there are, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about what fosters good collaborative practice. And then another question is kind of, how do we keep that going on a case or with teams? And some more research shows that there are some certain elements needed to sustain collaborative practice. So this this, um, aligns well with the work work in permanency. So one is pre-planning and in permanency work, we do a lot of planning meetings as teams, especially in the collateral process. And those are great opportunities to set aside time to kind of set the stage, clarify and assign roles, Um, really putting in that time and effort up front, I think is is really helpful. Another thing is commitment. So in those meetings, asking for kind of concrete commitments and creating deadlines and accountability um, that can help sustain some of these collaborative practices. Three would be strategic and deliberate action. Um, so following through on what we're saying, we're going to follow up on, and then support is huge. So formal and informal checking in on, on each other, on the team, what do people need? Do people need, um, support to actually get the task done? That kind of thing. So those four components, um, have been studied a little bit further to, to reveal how we actually sustain collaborative practices. Um, and then one more kind of thing in reflecting on our, our work with and cases um, is that I think another piece of advice or feedback I have is encouraging team debriefs. So I think that those are essential for working, for kind of improving our work and working collaboratively. And for example, many adoptive families and professionals experience disruptions, um, but we know that continuous feedback and evaluation is critical. To improving the experiences for kids and families. And I think having debriefs is um, something that can be really valuable in, in the field.
0: True. So true. And as long as we're on the advice and, and tips topic for parents, um, so what are some important tips for parents to become, you know, that important member of the youth's team? Like how do they need to speak up? How can they do that? And just in your experience, what do you think? What do you yeah, think is best yeah. for a parent to do?
2: I think thinking I worked with adoptive families for many years. And I think a lot of the work is contextualizing the child's team for of professionals, which then becomes the, the family's team and helping to work through some of the various perspectives and approaches in working with that team. Um, parents are critical advocates and First, listen to the young person. They're the experts and the clearest on what they need. And second, step back and examine each role of the team member and understand that most people don't have interdisciplinary education. Um, So anyone without a specific background in child welfare serving this population might not have the same lens or training. It doesn't mean they aren't child-centered or um, they don't have a family's best interest in mind. Oftentimes, there is a shared value, and we need to work together to articulate that shared vision. Again, I just echo to parents what the research shows results in effective team collaboration, staying flexible, open, respecting roles, and listening.
0: Those are some great tips and words of advice from a pro. So we, um, we also have you here today to talk about the spring conference coming up. So can you please share again how our listeners can attend the 23rd Annual Spring Child Welfare Conference on May 4th?
2: Yeah, so um, we are hoping to bring together many, many experts on this topic. So our conference is uh, scheduled for May 4th in Minneapolis at the Delta Hotel, and it will be in person with a chance for groups of three or more to stream virtually. Uh, We have a keynote speaker who's coming from New York Hunter School of Social Work, and she's going to discuss her research, some of which I discussed here, um, on multidisciplinary teams in child protection and related disciplines. And then she'll share kind of best practices. We have several panels, including a panel on behavioral health, one on disability services, and then one on public health and housing with some fantastic facilitators, And then we'll host a parent perspectives panel and a youth perspectives panel to hear from those um, with lived experience in child welfare. Uh, And then at that event, we will also be giving out our companion publication called CW360 on this topic of interdisciplinary collaboration in child welfare. And we'll be publishing that this month. And is it live in person so we will. the conference will be in-person with a chance for groups to stream
0: virtually. So Stacey, can you share the website link to get registered for that spring conference?
2: Yep, you can go to www.cascw.umn.edu, so cashewumn.edu, and then you will see a link to register for our conference.
0: Great. And we'll also include that in the description of the podcast so people can click on that. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us today, Stacey. It was great to spend some time with you and see you again and in our different roles. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh,
1: fabulous. No, I feel like we've had a, we have a rock star here. I'm in the presence of greatness, both of you. (laughs) So anyway, so thank you for your time so much. And um, I'd also like to point out this Podcast is very timely because May is National Foster Care Month. So thank you for being here.
0: Yeah, and thanks for representing the U of M. I have to give a shout out to my alum, much to Sonny's dismay. <laughs> go, go Gophers. Thanks again, Stacey. Thank you both.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today for Let's Talk. Please subscribe, rate, review wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon.